Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on this morning's programme on a cool autumn day in the capital is Colin Crean. Colin is the head teacher at Holy Trinity Catholic School, a mixed secondary school located in the small Eath area of Birmingham. Colin is also accounting officer for St. Teresa of Calcutta Multi Academy Company. Uh, Colin, very warm welcome to yourself today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. Thank you. It's such a pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us, Colin. Um, normally on the show, we dive straight into the subject of leadership at this point and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation, um, I feel it's appropriate that we start there because it's proven to be one of the most significant challenges of our time for leaders within all walks of life. And it has, of course, caused immense disruption for the education sector this year. Um, so to what extent has it affected you and your school? It's um, affected us to a, to a great extent um, and we are, since September, I guess, picking up the pieces from um, March and, and the, lock, the national lockdown that did, did take place there, in particular around our disadvantaged um, students who perhaps come from home lives that are not conducive to, to learning, um, are not conducive to well-being or, or support or safety. Um, it's been very, very hard reintegrating those students back into school mm. and then getting them back into the habits around learning, um, development and and progress. And likewise, our staff as well, um, who have done fantastically well during lockdown to develop and learn new skills in remote learning and virtual learning. And that adjustment coming back into the classroom with so many restrictions and so many constraints compared to what it was like previously, has proved to be a challenge so far. And can you see some of these measures being in place for quite some time yet, even when COVID-19 is no longer an issue and we do have a working vaccine, just because of the anxiety that will come about as a result of this? Yeah, I think in terms of the wellness and the well-being for pupils and staff, I think um, even post-vaccine, um, and we all hope that we, we, we get to that point, even post-vaccine, I do feel that there is going to still need some time of recovery for school communities to, to go back to how they used used to be. And perhaps the systems that have now been put in place over time may prove to be more successful um, systems. We don't know that yet. Um, but it's certainly going to be um, very, very interesting to see how it all um, works out in the end. And how have pupils and staff been coping having come back in from a mental health point of view, just because that has been thrust back into the limelight by the whole pandemic? And it's the fact that there's been the social isolation element of the lockdown first and foremost to deal with, as well as all of the anxiety over safety, for example. But also now coming back, it's going to be a little bit of a culture shock, isn't it? Being back amongst their peers, being back amongst teachers, and they're having to get used to that routine once again. Yeah, absolutely. It is a, it, it's been a huge, huge adjustment. But I guess what makes it more uh, difficult is that although students and staff are back in school, um, the social isolation still continues. 
Mm. So although we're physically all in the same building together, it's very, very different compared to how it used to be um, before because every opportunity we're looking to limit um, interactions to contain students in class or year group um, bubbles. So the isolation ultimately um, continues. I mean, teachers are still, you know, are are in teaching zones in, in, in a classroom, which is at a safe distance away from students, where in the past they would have freely walked around, interacted, spoke to students, built relationships up that way. Um, we're trying to to do that from from a safe distance now, which mm. is which is a challenge. It is absolutely. It's um, such a shock to the, uh, of course, the uh, the system having to deal with this. And even now, I think there are still changing guidelines and changing circumstances that are still coming through from ministers. And so schools are still having to be reactive, aren't they, to make sure that they remain COVID compliant. So it's difficult to be proactive when there are so many like short, like sort of short notice changes, isn't it? Yeah, um, it's, yeah, it, it is very, very um, difficult. And I, I use three phrases in school. We have to be collaborative, we have to be innovative, and we have to be um, flexible. Um, and since March, there have been so many times where we have had to adapt and we have had to adjust fairly quickly to changes or updates um, in, in guidance. Like uh, every sector um, ultimately has had to, to do that to, to, to some extent. And I guess we're becoming accustomed to the fact that planning can only really happen in the short term and looking forward to medium and longer term planning, although that's what you want to do. Um, it always goes with the caveat that actually it's always provisional or could be subject to, to, to change. And that's a difficult headspace to be in as a school leader because you, in theory, you should spend your time looking into the landscape, looking into the horizon, planning um, for the future in the medium and long term. But at the moment, it's very, very much um, surviving on a day-to-day basis in the short term. So that, again, has been a real shift in mentality um, for me personally, and I'm guessing for a number of school leaders nationally. And just out of interest um, as well, uh, because I was listening to um, an interview on um, BBC Radio 4's World at One uh, not too long ago from another school in the uh, the Birmingham area, I won't name names, but they did mention that there was no sort of significant financial support that was going into schools for sort of COVID secure procedures. Is that the case um, with yourselves as well? And it's essentially having to come out of the schools to already existing finances. And that's also another challenge you're having to grapple with. Well, previously, um, the Department for Education up until September, so from March up until September, actually subsidised school costings Mm. for COVID. So schools were reimbursed um, based upon their expenditure for for COVID. So that's what's happened up until September. What we, all schools, have now received um, is some information regarding catch-up funding, which has just come into school budget shares as of the last couple of weeks towards supporting with closing those gaps um, with students. I think all school leaders would always want to have more money, and I'm not going to um, sit here and pretend otherwise. But in terms of the reimbursement from the DfE and the catch-up funding, money has come into school in terms of fighting a, a COVID response. 
Mm, that's good. That's um, very encouraging to uh, to hear for sure. And um, just thinking about this from a leadership perspective, just a little bit more broadly, we are trying to find some positive in what has been a dark and dense cloud over all of us this year during the COVID-19 pandemic. So is there anything that you can take from this as a plus, maybe in the sense that you've learned something about yourselves, about each other and about the school community and how resilient that they've been? Yeah, I think the, the positive message is that you, you, although it's been a huge challenge, um, we haven't allowed it to totally consume us um, because we have had to adapt, we've had to be resilient, and we've had to come back. And despite the huge challenges at Holy Trinity in all schools, we have almost 700 students in school today learning and progressing with, with, their, with their teachers which is a huge step forward from where we were back back in March. I think another added advantage is the development of a virtual learning um, provision within school. It was something that we um, always considered to be a strength in school, but until you're actually put in the environment whereby you have to really use mm. it at high stakes, it's never been tested as much as what it has since March. So we have, going back to that word, been very innovative with, with how we've, we've gone about this. And we've all learned new and wonderful skills in the virtual world that perhaps had been dormant or not, or been redundant or not used previously. So that's a real, real positive um, for us that we are, as a staff, become more virtually and computer literate mm. and like that with, with, with our students. And going back to your earlier question around funding, We've also been greatly appreciative of the additional devices that we've received for our mm. disadvantaged children from the Department for Education and from, from local council um, that has supported with our virtual programme, not just here, but across our academy. And that support certainly going to be very important in the future, isn't it? Because it's all well and good being much more sort of technologically literate and being able to sort of use that going forward in the sector, perhaps for homework assignments, perhaps even in the classroom as well. But it isn't a one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to disadvantaged pupils because they may not have access to certain devices at home. They may not be, of course, as proficient in using them because they don't use them within their spare time. So it is something that those people are going to have to have access to and basically catch up with in order to make such a strategy work going forward. Yeah, it's, yeah it is a limitation, but um, we as a leadership team always have an ambition pre-pandemic for every single child in school to have a working device and access to the internet in some shape or form at home. It was always an ambitious ambition of ours to, to do that. But since March, that has accelerated that ambition and although there are limitations um, to that, we're not focusing on what we can't do. We're focusing on what we can do. So we are taking one year group at a time and we're working our way from top down, if you like. So as it stands, every single child in year 11 at Holy Trinity now has access to a working device and access mm. to internet at home. We've just carried out a survey with year 10 um, and we've pinpointed um, a number of students who will require that provision and training. So year 10, it's our ambition by October half term to be in that position. And then likewise, seven, eight and nine to, to, to follow suit. So although there's a limitation, if you have the ambition and the will, you can overcome that in the best interest of your students. Mm. 
Exactly right. And um, I know, of course, it is difficult to sort of look too far into the uh, the future during um, the this uh, current crisis. But just before we do wrap things up on the programme, Colin, because I'm conscious that we are running short of time, I would like to talk about the next year because we know that we're going to be sort of stuck in the new normal for quite some time yet, perhaps until the uh, the spring, judging by the Prime Minister's words just two weeks ago. Um, but over this period of time, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve at Holy Trinity? And where do you see yourselves and the school being in 12 months' time? I think that's a, that's a really, really good good question. I think um, in terms of the school, if we look at sort of basic need and priority at the moment, will be to continue with this positive momentum since we've returned in September, high attendance levels, good engagement, good behaviour, relationships starting again to, to be um, strengthened um, in the weeks and, and months ahead. That would be number one, I guess. Mm. Um, number two would be around um, year 11 and in terms of their provision and their preparation for what appears at this stage to be external examination next year. So looking at that catch-up funding that's been given to school to really target where the gaps are um, in order to catch student up, students up to fulfil their potential despite the huge setback of missing time from school from March. That has to be um, an absolute priority. And likewise, again, looking at our other year groups, identifying any gaps in their learning and their provision and plugging those gaps through catch-up, high-quality teaching and um, effective relationship building again between staff um, and pupils and sort of getting through this year really um, unscathed, still still here, still happy, still learning, still progressing would be my ambition um, for the, the, the next um, 12 months. It's a wonderful ambition and I certainly hope you have all the success in the world in making that possible and keeping the well-being of pupils and stuff well at the heart of that. And um, I actually think, Colin, just given how enlightening it's been having you join us on the programme to share what's been going on behind the scenes today, it would be wonderful to catch up and have you back on the programme with us at some point in the next few months just to see how things are coming along toward those aims. That would be fantastic. I'd love to do that. Thank you. I'd certainly welcome that opportunity as well, Colin. I've thoroughly enjoyed having you on the programme today. It's been a real, real pleasure. And until we do hopefully get to touch base again, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was a real pleasure to welcome Colin Crean, head teacher at Holy Trinity Catholic School in Birmingham and accounting officer for St. Teresa of Calcutta Multi-Academy Company onto today's programme. I would also reiterate that last message there to every single one of our listeners tuning in. Do please continue to be sensible and look after yourselves. Be considerate of others because it does make a real, real difference in saving lives. Uh, coming up next on the programme today, we'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders Council Chairman Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, having held numerous senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet during his premiership and served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He has been a member of the House of Lords since August 2015. And I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. 
Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, 
that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK, we, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi- interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of 
getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different Prime Ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue all of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. 
Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. 
if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did 
from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn Mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition, 
more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, 
they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, the thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.